You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 123, the CFFA 3000. Hello and welcome to episode 123 of You Don't Know Flat. Today is Sunday, February 10th, 2013, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. Today on You Don't Know Flack, I'll be talking about the CFFA 3000, a nifty little device for the Apple II line of computers. The song you are listening to right now came from Alone in the Dark, the old PC uh, horror survival game. I don't know if you'd call it a survival time game or whatever. I remember... Um, Alone in the Dark being very scary back in the day, and um, I've been on a bit of a DOS box kick this week and playing some old games, and I went back and played Alone in the Dark, and it was not very scary at all, uh, especially not compared to uh, some of the, the modern uh, zombie survival games that are out there, so, but there you go, today's, uh, today's intro music, a bit of a throwback to the old uh, Alone in the Dark game series. How is everybody? Uh, it's been a horrible week <laughs> for me. Uh, it hasn't been horrible, but it's been a very, very uh, long, stressful, busy week at work, and um, I think my online activity reflected that. I have not... Uh, I don't think I posted on my blog this week. I've been kind of absent from Facebook this week. I got an email from someone said, hey, are you still alive? Um, I guess I don't know if that's good or bad if people start worrying about you because you haven't been online in a couple of days. Um, but... Uh, here we are. We're back together again. Another Sunday morning. And um, we have uh, tons of feedback this week. Um, I asked for feedback on You Don't Know Flack, and boy, did you guys give it. So let's first check the voice mailbox. You have zero messages. Okay, the voice mailbox is not going good. The only messages in the voice mailbox are from me uh, leaving messages to myself, making sure that it's still working. The voice mailbox has been eerily silent. Eerily. Ear, eerily. Um, but it has been silent. There's cobwebs, digital cobwebs filling the voice mailbox. So if you would like to hear your comments played on You Don't Know Flack, then you can leave them in the You Don't Know Flag voice mailbox, which is area code 206-309-9501. You may notice that that is not a Oklahoma area code. That is a Seattle area code. But um, the voicemail service that I found that was free is located and gives out Seattle area code. Maybe it's just me. I don't really think it matters anymore. Um, ever since I moved primarily to using a cell phone, uh, long distance charges. Remember what a big deal? <laughs> long distance charges when we were kids calling BBSs like you would um, I remember uh, I think the long distance plan we had was about $10 an hour uh, for long distance calling. So 
Um, you know, if you were going to call it BBS, everything had to be really timed out, like, get on, get off, you know, check your mail. Um, you know, I would keep these little logs in a spiral notebook, uh, you know, so I would know how much I was going to have to pay at the end of the month. But uh, those days are gone, man. No more worrying about long-distance calling anymore. It's just with the cell phone. It's all free. So if you want to use your cell phone and leave a message in the You Don't Know Flack voicemail box, long-distance charges will not apply to your cell phone. Don't quote me on that. Maybe you have some kind of weird cell phone in it. If it charges you a fortune, hey, man, that's on you. But it won't be worth it to have your comments read on You Don't Know Flack. Okay, I'm going on way too long about this. The voicemail box number is 206 309 9501. So there were no messages in the voicemail box, but in the email inbox, holy camoly, did you guys leave me feedback? And actually, it wasn't just there. Uh, I got feedback on the Facebook, you don't know, Flack page. I got feedback on the podcast itself. And then after I post the podcast, uh, the following day, I usually post something on my blog announcing the podcast so you left comments there you left comments on my forum you left comments on other forums i'm on i think i um saw a few comments in twitter so holy cow you guys um you brought it with the feedback this week there's so much feedback i'm not going to be able to read all the feedback um and you guys sent feedback on multiple episodes so i'm only going to go back um about two or three episodes here uh but since we started the push. I keep saying we. There's nobody else here. I am literally in a small room by myself. Um, so I'm going to jump all the way back. But since uh, I started the push with the podcast, maybe that's uh, that's what's pushed the feedback up. So I'll go back to episode 120, which was about radio scanners, if you remember that episode. That was just a few weeks ago. And I got several uh, feedbacks. The first was from Tex Hogger, who left me a message on the podcast that said, Good info, Rob. Uh, and then he shared a story with me about um, when he was a kid, his grandparents had a scanner that had been set up by his uncle. His grandpa was a volunteer with the local fire department, so he would listen to what was going on in the town on the scanner, and uh, he would play with it a little bit. And uh, Tex Hogger also says he listens to the CB channels of the truckers that run up and down I-35, which is funny. I'm not sure where Tex... Well, Tex Hogger is obviously somewhere in Texas. Um, I'm in Oklahoma City. I-35 runs right by here, too. And actually, I'm a little bit further now, but I used to be just a couple of miles from uh, a this intersection. There's an intersection at I-40 and Morgan Road in Oklahoma. Nobody knows where that is. It doesn't matter. But um, there are... It's a it's an interstate off ramp. I mean, it's an exit, and they've put there are four truck stops there. There's one on every corner. It's horrible if you're ever trying to get on at that intersection. Um, yeah, so there's always CB traffic and, and talking going on. So from my house, I could um, pick up all that stuff with my scanner. But um, uh, so anyway, thanks to Tex Hogger for leaving me that little comment. Also, I got comments, two different comments from people blasting me for my. Um, technical inaccuracies which were terrible in the radio scanner episode and the first was from my good friend Koos Vandenhout I hope I said that right um, and uh, Koos is from the Netherlands and he has been following me since uh, Commodore came out he's been a uh, he's on the forums and I always enjoy getting his perspective of things 
And um, Koos had two comments for me. The first was that um, he says that he objected to the word eavesdrop, uh, which I used in scanner listening. He says that it's um, the information is out there, and so the radios just mean that you're picking up the frequency uh, of the communications, and so it's not eavesdropping. And, and um, I think, I have to go back and listen to it, but I think um, when what I was probably thinking of when I said eavesdrop is listening to phone conversations. I, I do think, that to me, that, that does seem like eavesdropping. I think when people talk on a cordless phone or a cell phone, they have an expectation of, of uh, privacy or, you know, it may be a just an assumption that there are only two people listening to that conversation. That's probably what I was thinking of when I said eavesdrop. Um, and also, uh, Coos points out that I mix up my hertzes, megahertzes, and gigahertzes, which is noticeable to this aspiring radio amateur, and he is absolutely right. I am terrible at that. I assume everything that ends in HZ is a Hertz, <laughs> um, which is silly. And obviously anybody that's really into uh, scanners and uh, amateur radios and things like that obviously uh, picked up on that. So thank you for pointing that out, Koos. Also, he mentions a little bit in the Netherlands how all the public safety services have moved to digital encryption networks uh, so he can still pick up air traffic control um, but uh, he can no longer hear cell phones or cordless phones um, or the links between the cell phone towers. So I tell you, you know, and this is a side note, but it, it is funny that, um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in this little tiny room in my uh, recording area here in, in the middle of the United States, right in the middle of the United States, in the middle of Oklahoma and in, in the um, middle of Oklahoma City. And so uh, obviously... The things that I talk about are very, not just um, uh, U.S. centric, but somewhat Midwest centric as well. So um, I'm always uh, I, I love getting feedback from people from other places. You know, like um, I mean, who would have thought that somebody from the Netherlands would would hear this and uh, kick it over? So I, I will try to um, make the podcast a bit more world centric. I'm not doing meters. I'm not doing the metric system. You'll have to convert whatever I say from inches and miles and Fahrenheit and all these uh, horrible non-standards that the rest of us, uh, the rest of the world does not use. But here in the U.S., we still use those things. So anyway, uh, my friend Icebreaker also left me uh, feedback, picking apart uh, all the inaccuracies of the radio scanner show, pointing out that uh, frequencies for cordless phones are in megahertz, not hertz. And that 46 hertz would actually be closer to the sound the Earth makes, and 900 hertz uh, would put me right around the AM band. He also um, let me know that the length of antenna is not actually equal to having good reception, but what matters more is that you have a match of impedance to the frequency you're trying to listen to, and that you're away from all the internal noise of your house. So that's actually a good point. He then uh, spent the next three paragraphs explaining uh, some sort of math equation for matching um, frequencies and antenna length that I did not understand. But thank you for sending that in, Icebreaker. Icebreaker, by the way, um, I don't even know, I, I don't know enough about it to explain it, but he does um, amateur uh, radio and uh, I guess it's ham radio, I th and um, he picks up these signals like all over the world. I didn't even realize it tied into a computer, but he showed me one time uh, on his computer that... Um, 
all the, the different countries and places he picks up signals from, and he has um, uh, all this stuff set up at his house, so it's pretty cool. So he knows way more about radio frequencies than I do, so good for him. <laughs> uh, on to episode 121, which was about thrifting, and I got a lot of uh, brief comments about the thrifting show. Uh, basically people saying that they enjoyed thrifting, they wanted to hear more about thrifting. I don't know what other thrifting stories I really have to share, so I don't know that there will be another thrifting episode in the future, but maybe, um, you know, one thing I thought about is there are a few kind of odd thrift places around here or whatever, so, um, you know, maybe if I, I might do a story focusing on one of those or uh, an adventure, you know, something like that, but... Um, uh, but thanks for all the thrifting-related feedback. And then I got one specifically from uh, a new listener, Sean Johnson, who heard about You Don't Know Flack on the Retroist podcast. So thank you, Sean, for listening to You Don't Know Flack and for the Retroist. Sean says he knows the exact smell I talked about very well and that his first job in high school was at the local Salvation Army. And he says it was a pretty cool job and that he was able to see all the new things coming in. And he says he wasn't into computers at the time, unfortunately, but he did build up a very nice record collection. See, I know the people working there. They get all the good stuff. I have actually thought, you will think I am totally insane. I have thought about going and getting a job, uh, like a part-time job or something at a thrift store. I, I don't have the time to do it anymore, but back in the day, I thought about doing that um, just to see the good stuff. Because I know the good stuff's there in the back, and then, you know, whatever doesn't get picked over comes out to us uh, poor customers but um anyway uh sean also shared some great stories with me about um some of his memories growing up and playing arcade games and what's funny is he mentions this story um about um when he was a kid that his parents were in a sunday bowling league and that they would give his uh, brother and himself a few dollars for candy bars uh, and that they would go and spend some of this money in this little room and play um uh, arcade games that he would play Moon Patrol and that his brother would play Joust and that he would watch his brother play Joust and that's funny um, and, and I may have mentioned this on the arcade podcast but my mom uh, and her friend were on a bowling league and so um, uh, my friend's mom well my friend is, is one of three is two brothers and one sister and then my sister and I and then sometimes we would take a friend so all these kids would go to the bowling alley while our parents would bowl and we did the same thing we would uh, there was a cocktail rally x game that I played a lot of and then the stand up there was a gorf there was a wizard of war and it's amazing um, I, I've talked about this before but the memory not just of the games but of the locations that go with those things you know um yeah, there was a Galaga, and that's the same bowling alley that had the Black Knight, um, the Black Knight pinball table. So, yeah, it, it's um, I have those great memories too. So I, I really um, uh, thank Sean for sending that in. We could brought back some of my own memories. You know, it's funny. A weird memory of that bowling alley is um, they uh, they had a jukebox, and this is of course like early '80s, and the jukebox was almost like a hundred percent country and western um and but when nobody would put money in the jukebox it would just play random songs but it, for some reason it only played a few songs so you know if we were there for a couple of hours you would hear the same songs just like dozens of times and one was kenny rogers the gambler uh and then another one i don't know who sings it was um 
Lord, it's hard to be humble. I mean, I'm not a country western guy, but I can sing every word to those songs to this day. We heard those songs so many times. It's funny. Um, I have all these random 80s songs on my uh, iPod, and we'll be on a road trip, and every time The Gambler comes on, I'll sing every word. And uh, my wife's always surprised that I know Kenny Rogers songs, but that's why I know them is from uh, uh, the jukebox was right next to the Galaga machine. And uh, uh, no, not Galaga, uh, Galaxian. And so I would sit there and play Galaxian and listen to Kenny Rogers over and over. It was a fun time. Uh, but anyway, thanks, Sean, for writing. And now we will bump up to episode 122 comments, which was about the main cabinets. And let me tell you, the main cabinet episode is the fastest rocketing episode that I have ever recorded. Um, I suspect a year from now it will be far and away the most popular episode and the most listened to episode. In the past week, over 2,000 people have downloaded and or streamed the um, MAME episode. The most, uh, other than the first episode of You Don't Know Flack, the introduction one has about 9,000 listens. Um, and then the episode about text adventures where I interviewed Rob Sherwin has about a little over 8,000. And then it starts going on, uh, I, everything on the top 10 has, uh, 7,000 now, I guess. But, um, there are a few episodes that have like two or 300, uh, for the iCade episode for whatever reason is, has like 300 listens. I don't know. I guess people weren't into the iCade, um, you think that's bad? Wait till you see how many people listen to the CFFA 3000 one, which is a really cool product, but it's a little bit obscure, more obscure of a uh, uh, a subject than something like MAME cabinets. But uh, uh, so we'll see how that goes. But I, uh, yeah, it, it's um, MAME cabinets got a lot of feedback and a lot of traction. So I'll get through these real quick, and then we'll get started with episode 123. Uh, the first feedback was from. Eric Nielsen, who is a one of the newer listeners to You Don't Know Flack. Eric's on the forums. And um, I gotta just have to mention this. When I asked for feedback and suggestions for new show topics, Eric sent me like 50. <laughs> Eric sent me enough topics, more topics than I've done on the entire show. Uh, I mean, even if I do them, if I get a show out every Sunday for this entire year, he has sent me a year's worth of topics. And, you know, I already have my own topics set aside. So Eric's topics will probably, probably You Don't Know Flack will be talking about Eric's suggestions for the next two years at least. So, uh, but Eric has been really great on giving me feedback and suggestions, and uh, so I really appreciate everything that he's written. And Eric says that he enjoyed the show, but he did not enjoy the background music uh, that was played during the intro, and uh, that he disliked the volume, and that uh, he's very ADD, which I am as well. And that he started focusing on the music and not the content. Now, one thing I will say is that the... And I think Eric um, got the first version that I put out of the episode. And the first version, for some reason, the mix levels were terrible. It sounded okay on my computer here upstairs. Uh, and then I posted it online and went downstairs and listened to it on my laptop. And it, the music was super loud. And not only that, but the entire podcast was like you know, another 50% louder than the rest for some, I don't know what happened. So, um, uh, I did readjust the levels and republish that podcast. So anybody who heard it later in the day or later in the week got the fixed version and the fixed version is the one that's online now. So, 
Uh, I'm going to try, I'm going to stick with the background music for a couple more episodes. I'm going to try to tune it down a little bit and um, put it in the background. But I do appreciate the feedback. So far, the vote uh, of everybody's vote for the background music is zero for it. and Well, maybe one for it, if that's me. So one for it and one against it. So that's the only vote so far this week. Uh, I did have, let's see, feedback from Obliterator918, my friend uh, Brandon. And uh, Brandon says that one video option I didn't mention is using an LCD monitor with the scanline effect in MAME. And he's absolutely right. I completely forgot to talk about scanlines. And scanlines are, if you remember old monitors or TVs, if you look really close at them, like you put your eyeball, like when you're a kid, put your eyeball all the way up on the screen. And you would see these little lines that go in between the graphics, you know, and those were the scan lines. And so MAME has a setting where you can um, basically artificially reproduce scan lines. So you could take that really cre- you know, uh, crisp and clear image that an LCD monitor puts out and then make, you know, simulate the look of scan lines on an old monitor. And so that is actually a great solution for LCD monitors, and I, um, I don't even on mine. I don't even have that set up, so I think I'm going to set that up and see how that looks. He also talked a little bit about um, the cabinet that he has. He used a 16 by 10 ratio LCD monitor, which gave more uh, screen real estate for the bezel artwork. So that's also, um, uh, you know, we talked about on Mame cabinets uh, putting the actual, the physical bezel artwork on there, but MAME also supports uh, virtual bezels, and, and uh, you can download those, uh, all the marquees and bezels and things like that, and you can actually display them around the monitor setup, and um, he says it looks a lot better than you might imagine, and it's the best of both worlds, so that's a, a good solution, so I'm going to have to look into that. Uh, he also says uh, that he does switch off the um, scanline option for vector games. And so that that's, um, I guess that's something you can automate too. But uh, uh, so anyway, thank you, uh, Brandon. Also, the next feedback I got was from Aaron Rashong. This is the first time I've heard from Aaron. And Aaron says, congratulations. You're doing a great job meeting the show a week goal for 2013. And he also says, all your listeners appreciate the effort you put into it. Well, good. Because there's a lot of effort that goes into it. <laughs> there's not that much effort that goes into it. It's a, a time commitment, is what it is. Is um, getting up early on Sunday mornings and cranking this out before uh, it's time for breakfast and uh, or lunch, as it uh, as the longer shows drag into. Um, Aaron also uh, wrote a little bit about learning about building main cabinets the hard way, and um, you know he did the same thing I did. He his first cabinet, he just took all this old stuff and old computer and put all this stuff together, and and um, wasn't really happy with the end result. And now he's looking to build a new machine from scratch. And you know what it reminded me of? Um, this is kind of off off the beaten path, but what Aaron's feedback reminded me of was um, those old days of building websites. Like remember when you put your first website up? It was all like I did mine in HTML and, and used Notepad and. Um, you know, it was like text on the screen. Maybe you changed the... I didn't change anything on mine. I was like, this is a web page. You know, break, break. Uh, here are links to things I like. List. <laughs> and, um, you know, then... This is like early 95, right? And then, um, you know, then you see a website and you're like, Whoa, you can make stuff blank? Look at these animated 
gifts here. This is cool. Look at, um, you could get this to play background music, and then pretty soon every, this is like the birth of GeoCities, right? Like, every website looks like this, uh, you know, MIDI multimedia crap fest where it takes like eight minutes to load and you have all your little blinking under construction signs and, um, you know, all your little animated pictures and it's playing music and and um, <clears throat> and then you know eventually you're like we 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 realized that was crap right and then so we all kind of scrapped those websites and now we do really slick looking websites that are you know what we wanted you know not just every single thing thrown in the kitchen sink right so now we know about web design and I mean we did it we did. At first, we just did the, the basics, and then we, you know, everything you could do we threw in, and then we all stepped back and said, that doesn't look very good, and so then we kind of came in with some design, some aesthetics, and we all redid our websites, right? And so, it's kind of the same thing with MAME cabinets, like, you know, the first thing is just to get it to work, like, I can't tell you how many MAME machines, it's, <laughs> I've had the same experience with um, car audio, I did um, car audio as a hobby for a while. And uh, I can't tell you how many cars I drove around with with a stereo hanging half out because you you wire everything in and then you go, ah, I just want to test it and make sure it works. And then I would never finish the part, you know, because it works. So I'd quit working on it. And I did that with my first main cabinet. Like, I got the wiring in and the joysticks. And I'm like, I just want to see if it works. And then, like, you know, nine months later, after I've played eight million games of Excite Bike, I'm like, eh, you know, I'll never finish that. And, and um... But that's, I think, what we all did with MAME cabinets is we, we got them working first, and then the next step, you're like, it's like those GeoCities, the old websites, you know, where you, you're like, oh, I want to have a spinner and a four-way and an eight-way, and I want 18 buttons per person, and I want to build cup holders into the side and ashtrays, and I want neon lighting and 18 subwoofers. I want surround sound. I want, like, sticks that hang off the top that put surround sound speakers behind me and a TV antenna so I can get live television. And I wanted to play TRS-80 text adventures. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's the equivalent of those websites, right? In a main cabinet. Um, and then now I think once you go through that process, you come back and you go, okay, well that's, I do have a machine now that plays everything. Like, one person can be driving a steering wheel and the other person can be using a spinner and a third person has a light gun. But, you know, then you start to say that doesn't aesthetically it doesn't look very good. Now you step back and you start, you know, making something that looks a little bit more slick. So I think um, I think that's where we're at. One more quick feedback. Uh, this is from Rob Snyder, uh, who says that uh, he enjoyed the name Cobb. Uh, Rob says he enjoyed the main podcast and that it was as good or better than all that have preceded it. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, he says my book invading spaces inspired him to build his main cabinet and uh, that he used a kit and that he is as good at working with wood as it sounds. I am. Well, that's rude. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm terrible at working at wood. Everything that I've ever put together with wood has split ends where I've screwed things in too hard. Uh, and anything you will know if I build it with wood because you will get a splinter from it at some point. I'm not so much on the sanding, uh, but I'm very good on the functionality. 
Uh, and Rob also says he grew up with uh, Commodore computers. Oh, and he mentions that he wants to pick my brain on how to get CHD files to work. And CHD are um, hard drive images that work with MAME. There are games um, uh, that arcade games that have hard drives in them, like uh, War Gods is one, um, and they are a pain in the ass to get to work with MAME. And actually, what you have to do. And I, I could go look up the details, but basically what you have to do is, is um, if you have a CHD image in the ROM directory, like if you have wargods.zip, which is the ROM, you have to make a folder called wargods, which is the same name as the zip file. So if the game is wargods.zip, you make a folder called wargods, and then copy the CHD inside that folder and unzip it. So, uh, And then the game should automatically see it. But yeah, it's not very intuitive on how to get those to work. Um, and also, I, Rob sent me this great side story because, and it's funny because I had mentioned the Gravis gamepad, uh, and Rob says that he used to work for Gravis, uh, out in Pennsylvania, and he got a job where he was supporting their gamepads and joysticks, and, um, then he says they're crappy sound cards, but I thought the, um, Gravis Ultrasound, isn't that... Uh, the Gus or whatever on, on demos, I thought that was supposed to be a really good sound card, but um, maybe they weren't very uh, good when it came to supporting him. But he um, left Electronics Boutique, which is another place I would have loved to work. Uh, as a kid, I remember going to the mall and going to EB and watching, they had the little uh, monitors in the front where you would watch game demos, and I would just stand there in the mall and watch that. So he left EB to go um, do tech support, and he says... Um, he spent about three years playing network games, answering the phones and emails, and he got to go to uh, E3 in 2000 and stayed in Beverly Hills. And then, um, unfortunately, the job ended up ending. But uh, he says he still enjoys being able to tell people where he about how when he got to play uh, Capture the Flag and Quake Three all day for a living. So that's um, that does sound like a pretty cool job. And I bet I bet he got lots of. Uh, free game pads and joysticks and stuff working there. Wouldn't that be great? Like, uh, I've never worked... I worked for Best Buy, and of course now, you know, I work um, for the government doing IT, but I've never um, worked for, like, a computer place. I guess Best Buy, um, I got some perks, but before that, I, every job I had was in fast food. So, um, I got lots of uh, free pizza and free chicken <laughs> and free fish from Long John Silver's, but I... Um, God, I would like to trade all that food uh, for computer parts. That would have been great stuff. So, Anyway, my goodness, this has been a lot of feedback for this episode, and I hope uh, that everyone is still listening uh, and that we can actually get to episode 123, which is about the CFFA 3000. So, thank you, everybody, for your feedback. I am wiping the slate clean. I'm drawing the line in the sand. Uh, so, no, I won't go any more old feedback from here on out we will only talk about new feedback so if you want to send me feedback on this episode or any previous episode you can email that feedback to me at robohara at robohara.com uh, or like I said uh, you could call the voice mailbox and leave me a feedback there if you don't want it read on the air if you just want I mean if you don't want it played on the air you just want me to mention it this is all just fun right so just whatever you want to do just um, however you want to get me feedback leave me the feedback and um, and I'll mention it on the air or whatever. So, without further ado, and that was a lot of ado, this is episode 123, the CFFA 3000.
just mentally running through the list of old computers um, that we used to own, I think we had five computers before we ever owned a hard drive. We had a TRS-80 Model 3, an Apple II, my Commodore 64, an IBM PC Junior, and an IBM XT that all operated off of floppy disks only. Now, there were hard drive solutions available. Uh, They were way too expensive uh, for my budget or my family's budget. Uh, So all of those computers that we owned ran off of floppy disks uh, alone. So, you know, you... um, uh, like the Commodore has basic built in and the operating system built in, but other computers you had to boot uh, to DOS or some flavor of DOS, the generic term DOS being a disk operating system. Um, and so you would load all of your games off of floppy disks. Uh, this is obvious to those of you who were there, but if you weren't there, uh, you didn't just turn on your computer and load a game. You turn on your computer and rifled through this disc box, and all of us had um, our own ways of organizing these things. I had every disc numbered, and then I had a giant spreadsheet. Um, Not really a spreadsheet, I had a text file uh, that was manually updated. And uh, actually, actually it's kind of funny, because so many of those discs I would remember, and I still remember, I can still tell you, that my terminal program was on disk 39 and that skater die was on disk 280 and just these numbers the the image of the diskette uh, still sticks in my mind i can still see the numbers not all of them but but lots of them i can remember so uh, but anyway you would flip through this disk box find the disk that you wanted uh, and put the the program you wanted in or the game and then uh, load load that program in and If you don't know, you probably know this, but floppy disks are somewhat fragile. Um, And I'm speaking of floppy disks in general, including uh, the old 8-inch. I never had an 8-inch floppy drive. Uh, I started with 5.25-inch floppy drives, uh, floppy disks, and then uh, I think everybody moved to uh, 3.5-inch at some point. But all of these discs, especially the old five and a quarter inch floppy disks, were uh, fragile. They store information magnetically on the disks. And on a five and a quarter inch floppy disk, if you look at a floppy, you will see the magnetic film where the data is stored. And it's you were supposed to protect this by putting it inside a paper sleeve, a disk sleeve. But um, disks were susceptible to heat. To cold, if you bent them, if you put them too close to a magnet, it could erase the magnetic information off the disc. If you got them wet, if you scratch them, I mean, there are all magnitude of ways to ruin five and a quarter inch floppy disks. Uh, I know lots and lots and lots of people took their discs when they got rid of their old computers and put them out in their garage or in their attic in hopes of, you know, you save these things and you think, oh, well, you know, years later, oh, I might pull these out, look at them, and now all these discs are ruined from getting too hot or too cold. So, um, and and what can be frustrating is sometimes the entire disc isn't ruined, um, just a portion of the disc. But if it's an important portion of the disc, then um, the floppy disc is no longer readable. And there are uh, people that are preserving all this old software. I have um, several devices that allow me to back up 
Commodore and old PC and Apple II discs over to um, disc images, and I'll get into that just a little bit. But, um, so the old way of thinking for me uh, was once emulators came along, and we talked a little bit about uh, MAME, well, we talked a lot about MAME in episode 122, but emulators being software programs that emulate hardware, that pretend to be hardware and allow you to run software that was designed for other platforms. So MAME is an emulator that runs arcade programs, but there are also computer emulators available for modern computers. So I'm a PC guy. Um, So there are emulators for the PC that will allow me to uh, make, you know, run a virtual Commodore 64 or run a virtual Apple II or any, pretty much any old hardware platform that you can think of. There are probably... Uh, emulators available for the logical step once you see a virtual and let's just go with the Commodore 64 here for a few minutes once you have a virtual Commodore 64 on your computer the first thing you need is virtual games now in the old cartridge world of emulation we call those ROMs because they are dumps of cartridge ROMs ROMs being read-only memory Um, so it's a little bit of a misnomer to call computer disk images ROMs because they're not ROMs. They are read-write. And so we just call those disk images. But um, So once you've got your virtual Commodore set up, the first thing you want to do is get some disk images um, that you can play on that virtual machine. And there are lots and lots of disk images, lots and lots and lots and lots of disk images available for the Commodore 64. If you um, check out GameBase 64 and track down the game base releases uh i think the last version of game base has more than 20,000 commodore 64 disc images for games alone there are more for the utilities and applications and things like that so that's an awful lot of games available but if you were like me you probably created some things with your old Commodore 64 and those creations may be still sitting out there on real physical diskettes. So once you have that virtual computer on, on, you know, that virtual Commodore 64 on your computer, the wheels probably start turning. How do I get physical Commodore 64 diskettes and convert them into these disk images that I can use on an emulator? And it turns out there are multiple ways to do that. Now, as a a kid, I thought, oh, well, you know, there must be a program that will allow me to put this five and a quarter inch Commodore diskette into my five and a quarter inch floppy drive on my PC uh, and read that disk in. And for many, many, many years, there was not a way to do that. Um, So multiple solutions throughout the years have been invented. One was the X... 1541 series of cables which have a serial cable on one end that plugs into a actual Commodore 64 disk drive and a parallel port on the other end that plugged into uh, an IBM PC. Now this was a workable solution. However, it um, the drivers and the software that allowed this little magic interface to work uh, was very sensitive to timing issues and needed direct access to the hardware. So it doesn't really work in Windows. It only worked in true DOS. So uh, when I got my first X1541 cable, it worked great, 
But we're talking, you know, days where um, dual booting into DOS or Windows wasn't a big deal. Now it's, you know, on modern hardware. Well, the last PC I bought doesn't even have a parallel port, so it's it's a moot point at this point. Uh, but there are other. There's the uh, Zoom Floppy, which is a USB interface that allows you to hook a physical Commodore 64 drive up to a PC. There's the FC5025 project, and I have one of those as well. Uh, that allows you to dump not only Commodore disks, but Apple II disks and old uh, IBM PC disks and several other formats to PCs for use for emulators. So this solves the solution. This gives us a solution. How do we get physical disks and convert them over into disk images that we can use with emulators on our modern PC? So if that's all you want to do, those solutions are out there. Some of these solutions also allow you to go the other way. And this is something that I don't, I didn't think of 10, 15, 20 years ago. My entire concern with my Commodore collection was to archive it into virtual disk images so that um, I could play them on emulators. I never thought about downloading virtual disk images and converting them over into physical disks. Now, you could do that with the X1541, but I never personally pursued it. I mean, once I had the uh, the images on the computer and I had the emulator on the computer, I didn't see the reason of doing it you know, physically. But now, uh, looking to my left here, I have an Amiga, I have an Apple II, and I have a Commodore 64 all hooked up and ready to go. So now, uh, the second phase, I guess if you would say, the next level, is not going from physical disks to virtual disk images, but going the other way, taking those virtual disk images, downloading um, D64, Commodore 64 disk images, and converting them over into real floppies. And you might say, why would somebody want to do that? I don't have a great answer for that. I guess if you're a uh, hardware purist, um, there are certain things that only work on the hardware. There are certain things that um, only sound right on a real SID chip. They don't sound right on a... uh, emulated or a uh, virtual Commodore 64. So, that, I mean, there are reasons to do it. Maybe you just enjoy the original hardware. I enjoy the original hardware. Uh, so, there's some reasons to do that. But So, the first level is taking physical disks and converting them over to disk images. The next level, the second level, is taking those virtual disk images and c- making real floppy disks out of them. Okay, So, there's a third level that has just come out and over the last, oh, let's say four or five years. And that is taking those disk images that you get off of the computer and, you know, off of internet sites, websites, whatever, and playing them on real hardware, but not having to create real diskettes out of them. So you think, well, how could you do that? Well, the solution, there are multiple solutions for the Commodore 64. The best one that I've personally found and used is the 1541 Ultimate. And that I actually covered in detail in episode 109 of You Don't Know Flag. Episode 109 was all about the 1541 Ultimate. So not to retread that information, but the 1541 Ultimate plugs into the cartridge port and it has a slot for an SD card or an SD, um, I think Micro is what the newer ones use. I have the older version that uses a, a full-size SD card. But that allows you to download virtual disk images off of the internet, put them on an SD card, plug that SD card into the 1541 Ultimate, which is connected to the Commodore 64, 
browse that list of D64 images and mount them exactly like real floppy disks. So you don't have to convert them to real floppy disks anymore. You are playing virtual disk images on the Commodore 64, and the Commodore 64 is none the wiser. Uh, so this saves, first of all, I don't know when the last time you went and bought five and a quarter inch floppy disks. <laughs> I think they cost more now than they cost back in the day when they were new. Um, and I have, you know, I have discs laying around, but it, that's a pain in the butt to have to convert all this stuff back and forth, especially if you just want to try something real quick, you know? So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, a much easier way to do that. So, uh, as most of you know, I was primarily a Commodore user. I got my Commodore 64 in 85 and then, uh, I had it for a long time. Actually, I still have it. So that would be a long time. It's sitting right here next to me. But before I was a Commodore user, I was an Apple II user. Actually, it's not true. I was a Franklin Ace 1000 user, which is a compatible clone to the Apple II, uh, 2E. But, uh, so yeah, I was an Apple guy for uh, several years. And so I have lots of Apple memories that go along with those Commodore memories. I wasn't an Apple user as long, but, uh, but yeah, I, I was an Apple guy, especially in the early days. As a kid, the Commodore 64 was a better machine. To a kid, it had better sound, it had better graphics, it had better colors, it used Atari joysticks. It had all these things that, as a kid, made it a better game-playing machine. Um, in retrospect, I think the if I'd have been a little bit older, I don't know, maybe I would have been more of an Apple guy. Um, it's hard to say, but um, so I do appreciate the Apple. And... A few years ago, I heard about this new project. Before I tell you about the project, i got to tell you uh, an old theory of mine. And this theory was uh, given to me by Buster Friendly, who is one of the old Brotherhood of 405 guys. And Buster Friendly told me one time uh, that his best programming projects start with a good name. Every time he does a project, before he ever starts... He sits down and comes up with a good name. Uh, and then he says the code will follow. <laughs> and uh, he told me that a long time ago. And uh, so at work, I do lots of little coding projects. I do coding projects on the side. A few years ago, I wrote a uh, basically a one-time pad encryption program. The one-time pad, you can use a one-time pad of a graphic file that's hosted on the Internet it'll download that graphic file and convert it over into ASCII and then use that as the one-time cipher pad. So, uh, and it doesn't repeat numbers. It was actually a pretty slick little thing. But before I ever started, I sat down and I, what I wanted was like a decoder ring was the idea, you know, behind the program. And so uh, I spent an entire day just brainstorming about the name and the name ecoder ring came to me. Uh, it's not groundbreaking, but it tells you exactly what the program is. It's a decoder ring, but it's electronic. It's an e-coder ring. Uh, and once I came up with that name, the program fell in line right behind it. Um, when I wrote Batchomatic for uh, generating batch files off of uh, using input from text files, it was the exact same thing. I came up with the name first. The program fell right behind it. So uh, on the Commodore 64, if you don't know, the primary original disk drive for the Commodore 64, Commodore's brand, was the 1541 disk drive. Now, later on in the 128, they had the 1571 and the 3.5-inch uh, 1581. So there were um, uh, other floppy drives, but the main one was the 1541. 
Later, when they redesigned the 1541C, they came out with a, another version of the 1541, and it was the 1541-2. So there's the 1541, there's the 1541-2. So the very first uh, US or SD-based floppy drive thing that I saw for the Commodore 64 was called... Uh, the 1541-3. So you had the 1541, 1541-2, and the 1541-3. Uh, great name. Right behind that was the 1541 Ultimate. Another good name. I mean, it tells you exactly what it is. It's a 1541, it's a 1541+, plus, the 1541-3, uh, the 1541 Ultimate. So you get the idea. So a similar device, I read about a similar device a couple of years ago coming out for the Apple. And the name of this device, now there's Apple, Apple II, Apple IIe, Apple IIc, Apple II Plus. Um, so I'm like, okay, this, this needs a good name to tell me what it is. So the name of this device is the CFFA-3000. That's a horrible name. <laughs> um, if you know what it stands for, it stands for the Compact Flash. CFFA is Compact Flash for Apple. 3000. So, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Um, I'm, not, I'm not even sure what the 3000 means. And I ordered the second generation, which doesn't use compact flash. It's USB based. So, uh, yeah, it, I mean, right off the bat, I, I love this product and I love, you know, little projects like this. But um, this thing really could have used a better name. <laughs> I should rename. We should have a contest to rename the CFFA 3000. Um, I, I do really enjoy uh, this product, but trying, you know, telling, I told my wife, uh, she says, she was asking about the podcast. I said, last week's went really well. She said, what was it about? I said, main cabinets. She says, oh, what's this one about? I said, the CFFA 3000. She says, well, good luck with that. Uh, so uh, it does kind of have a uh, technical sounding name, if you will. So I'm going to open up the CFFA website here which you can get to at dreher.net. And uh, under the CFFA, CFFA portion under project definition, um, it says that it is a compact flash slash USB flash drive interface for the Apple II family of computers. So what this is, what the CFFA 3000 is is a card that goes inside your Apple II computer that allows you originally uh, to put Apple disk images on a compact flash card, just like uh, the Ultimate 1541 allows you to put those disk images on a SD card. So you can put uh, these Apple disk images on a compact flash card, plug it into this card, and then play them as if they were real floppy disks. Now, when I first saw this, I, you know, I was less excited and it has nothing to do with the product just because I'm less of an Apple guy, uh, than I am a Commodore 64 guy, but I would say number two, I'm an Apple II guy. I mean, it's like right there, uh, right there behind Commodore. So, uh, when I heard about this, obviously, um, I mentioned this, on the thrifting episode, but uh, through local sales and different places, I have amassed 
this collection of Apple II computers. Um, I have, uh, let's see, I think I mentioned this last week. I have one, two, three, four, five, five Apple IIs sitting right here. Uh, those are Apple IIEs. And then I had an Apple IIc that I purchased. And I really like the Apple IIc because it has the smaller footprint. It has the built-in floppy drive on the side. And it has the um, simpler interface for daisy-chaining multiple devices for hooking up additional floppy drives and such. So uh, I had been using the 2C as just my little play-around uh, Apple computer. The problem is the Apple IIc doesn't have the slots inside. It's the compact design and doesn't have slots available to add cards in. So if you want to... Uh, play with the CFFA and add that to an Apple machine, you'll need an older style Apple. Now, you can also add it to a 2GS, uh, but I don't have a 2GS. I got rid of mine. Uh, but it will go into the 2 Plus, 2, 2E, that, those uh, computers. Now, I uh, plugged it into... I have a Franklin Ace 1000, or had a Franklin Ace 1000. I just recently destroyed it on accident. But uh, I plugged this card into that. But what I found with the Franklin Ace, it was untested when I bought it, and most of the keys on the keyboard weren't working. And um, so I wasn't really able to test test this card out. Now, um, like I said, most of my experience with Apple IIs is from a long, long, long time ago. And... Uh, so I was able to open my Apple II, and which is pretty simple to do. <laughs> you Apple guys just laughed because really you just pull up on the top and the top comes off. Um, but I didn't know what slot to put this card in. And um, after checking online, it seemed like most people were putting them in slot uh, 6 or 7, but my drive controller was already in slot 6. So right off the bat, what I saw is that I don't know enough about Apple II hardware. Um, I mean, I had to do research where an Apple person would probably just say, oh, well, it just goes here or whatever. But I had to actually do some online checking. And uh, so w what I did was I moved um, the physical drive controller to slot 7, and I put uh, this new CFFA in slot 6. Now, not having been very familiar with installing Apple cards... It looked to me... Now, I have built PCs from scratch. I mean, I have, I'm not a dummy. <laughs> I have ordered cards one at a time and built a PC. Um, so installing a card should not be difficult in an older computer, any more difficult than it is in a modern computer. So when I uh, went to install the card, it didn't appear to me that it would fit, and the reason why is because... Um, I ordered the second run of the CFFA, which instead of compact flash, uses USB sticks, which is what I actually wanted. Um, and if the card... What didn't make sense to me was it looked like the way that the card fit, that the USB port would be extending inside the computer, and then you would put the top on it, and you would never be able to access it. Um, and every 2E I've ever seen... Uh, had a monitor sitting on top of it, including mine. So I thought this can't be the way it goes, but it wouldn't fit the other way with the USB connector coming out the back. But it turns out that that is the way it's designed. It is designed 
Um, I, I don't really, I'm sure there's a, some logic to this that I'm not getting, but it is designed to where once you put the top back on your computer, you can no longer access the USB port. Uh, so the first thing I had to do, I'm getting a, uh, slightly ahead of myself here, but the first thing I had to do was track down a USB extension cable and plug it into the card and then run the cable out the back of the machine and around the side, which is now uh, what my USB stick is plugged into. So it's a little bit awkward design, I felt, but there may be a technical reason for that that I, I don't know. So the CFFA supports uh, virtual floppy disk images, which is what we're talking about, but it also supports emulating um, a Apple hard drive. Now, this may be, I guess it could fall into one of three categories, and I'm the third. Uh, the first is, you have been really wanting to emulate an Apple hard drive, and so I mean, this is a solution for that, so um, uh, that's good for you. The second is, maybe you didn't know or you didn't need that, but it sounds like a fun thing to play around with, and you'll want to set that up, so that's number two. Number three, I'm not interested in that at all. I didn't have an Apple hard drive. I don't have any interest in emulating an Apple hard drive. All I wanted to be able to do was play these Apple floppy disks like I did back in the day on my Apple uh, without having to make physical disks. So I'm in the third category, which is, that sounds like a really neat feature, but I have not used it yet. So how does this product work? Um, when I ordered this product, I have to say this, that I was also prompted that I might want to get a remote. And the remote plugs in, it's a ribbon cable that plugs into the card and it comes around and there are a couple of buttons that you press and it says that this allows you to switch through uh, floppy disks that you uh, you mount. So basically what the idea is is that um, let's say you're playing a game that has multiple floppy disks like um, Barge Tale. And Barge Tale I don't remember for sure if it had two, three, four, whatever, whatever disks, but um so what you do is you would mount, the, you have two options. If you don't buy this remote, then uh, without the remote, what you would have to do is you could put the one disk image on your USB stick, and then when it says, uh, you know, please insert disk two, you would have to have a different USB stick to hold that disk, uh, or you could, I guess, stick it back in your PC and copy the other one over or whatever. And that sounds like a pain in the butt to me. So the other option is to buy this remote, um, which plugs into the card, and then the buttons that are on the remote allow you to cycle through multiple disks. So before you start Bargetail, you would copy over all the Bargetail disks into disk slot one or whatever. Uh, and then as you're playing, when it says insert the next, next disk, you press this button on the remote and it cycles through. Um, I don't know if I would ever use that option. I mean, it sounds like something I would use, but more importantly, um, especially when dealing with these retro products, and you don't know how long this is going to be for sale. You don't know if they're, maybe they won't ever make anymore. Maybe uh, it goes away. So I personally bought it just because if I decide a year from now I want one and it's not available, then I'd just be SOL, right? So I went ahead and bought the remote. Um, the CFFA does allow you to boot off of those virtual disk images. So for those games that were self-booting, you can just um, put the disk, the virtual disk, and the virtual drive, turn the machine on. Uh, when you turn your Apple on, you hit uh, 
I believe it's Control M. I'd have to look because I do it by memory now. But uh, you hit Control M, I think, and it brings up the menu, and then that's where you can mount different discs or whatever. Now with a physical uh, drive controller, which I do have plugged into a different slot, I have it in slot seven, I believe, and the virtual one in six. And what this allows me to do is copy. Uh, from virtual disk images to real disks and back. So I could also uh, create blank um, you know, disk images and copy from a real disk and dump it to a disk image. So, I mean, right there, that's, that's the selling point for me. Uh, I mean, that's the gateway. That's the thing that we all need for archiving these old disks, you know, because that's the reality. I can't really stress that enough that um, these disks are not going to last forever. So having the ability to take old physical disks and um, convert them over into disk images, I mean, once they're on your, your PC's hard drive or whatever, now they're archived forever. I mean, once you, you know, unless your hard drive crashes, but, um, you know, that's when you upload them to the web or to the cloud or whatever uh, you want to say. But, um, you know, getting those disk images out, now they're archived out in the world where they can be recreated as physical disks anywhere, so... So, um, let's see, what else can I say about the CFFA? On the website, there is a compatibility list uh, of CF cards and USB sticks that are compatible or incompatible with the device. Now, you know how it is when you buy something and then you can't get it to work and you're, you, I assume that I'm doing something wrong or, secondly, that maybe the product is defective. So when I bought the CFFA, um, I put some disk images on a USB stick, I plugged the USB stick in, and it wouldn't recognize it. And then I went through two or three USB sticks, and then I thought, well, obviously I'm doing something wrong here. And I read the documentation that says, well, it must be formatted you know, to FAT16, which mine are. I reformatted one. Uh, I just couldn't get it to recognize the USB sticks that I have. And a couple of them are like these novelty ones, like I have one that's shaped like Darth Vader. And you pull his head off. So I thought maybe it's because these are cheap USB sticks or something. Um, so as a desperate attempt, I just ordered... I ordered some stuff off of Tiger Direct. I don't know if you're a Tiger Direct or a Newegg guy. It seems like people are one or the other. But um, uh, I ordered some things off Tiger Direct, and it said, after I ordered, other people who ordered this product also ordered these. And I hate that stuff because, first of all, um, I don't care what other people ordered. And second of all, I usually end up ordering <laughs> what it suggests. And so it says other people ordered this and they were having a sale on HP brand 32 gig USB sticks for $9.99. And so I was like, well, damn you other people, <laughs> because I bought two of them. Uh, so I got two 32 gig USB sticks and um, I tried that as a last resort and it works great. I plugged it into... Uh, and I tried it with or without, I tried all these with and without the extension cable, but even with the extension cable, I plug this in and it works beautifully. So, um, and there is that weird, uh, I don't know if it's ironic, it's not really irony, but, um, you know, the fact that I'm copying over these 150K Apple disc images onto a 32 gig USB stick to play these old games is, um, I don't know, it's just kind of a, a weird advancement in technology. But anyway... Um, so there does seem to be some uh, compatibility issues. I'm just looking here at the uh, for the uh, older card, the CF card, and it looks like uh, there are about 10 that I've found that work. Uh, 
uh, and then about five that don't work, different brands, and um, like Memorex, and uh, so it's not just you know off weird brands. Uh, the Memorex cards don't work. Kingston Canon cards don't work, um, but SanDisk and Kodak and SimpleTech do. So yeah, before um, you invest any money in a card, you you might want to check the um, the website and see what's compatible. Um, so the CFFA 3000, it says here on the website, is the third generation, so I perhaps that's where the 3000 comes from. Uh, it allows you to use CF, uh, Compact Flash, and USB Flash Media as discs in your Apple II computer. Now, both, all the versions of the CFFA uh, have been limited editions. I believe the second run was... Uh, I want to say 500. I'm not sure now because the uh, order form's gone off the website. But um, uh, they went. They went pretty. Seemed to me like it went pretty fast. Um, when the first ones went out that were Compact Flash, like I said, I, I kind of wanted one, but I'm not. I don't have anything else that uses Compact Flash anymore, so I wasn't thrilled about that. Then when they said they were making a second run and they had added USB, I was definitely all over that. So I'd, I'd already been on the uh, pre-order uh, pre-order page, and so I got notified and I ordered one. Um, so let's talk about cost. The CFFA 3000 is $149.95, so that's $150 um, to be able to do this. So all this stuff, all this, the new retro hardware is expensive. I mean, if you think about, I mean, the run numbers of these 500 cards is not very many cards. It's expensive uh, to get these things made, plus all the R&D that goes into it, plus the support that goes into it. So um, 150, I don't think is is um, very expensive, really, in the big picture. I mean, uh, obviously, it's an investment. So, if you're um, something that you don't think you get a lot of use out of, then it may not be worth the money. But for me, uh, just being able to, like I said, copy these images over, and I've kind of become a little bit online. I've had several people contact me recently about archiving their disc images. Uh, people that have. You know, I, I just had a guy recently on a forum say that um, he developed some old text adventures and uh, other games on the Commodore back in the 80s, and his computer's long gone, but he found his old disc, so he wanted to know if anybody could archive them for him. So I told him, sure, and those discs are uh, in the mail en route right now, and I hope to uh, convert those over and get those sent back to him. But there have been, there was a very public um, project recently um about uh, Prince of Persia, the original Prince of Persia, the original code and, and beta versions had been found, and so uh, people worked together to import that, uh, get those discs copied back over and preserved. So um, as, as far as, I mean, just having that tool available, even if I only use it a few times, to me, it's worth the money. And like I said, just being able to dump those disc images and, and play them on the original hardware, I enjoy doing that. So to me, it's worth the money. Um, but like I said, you just have to... Um, gauge yourself, you know, and see how much, uh, how often you would use it. Also on the website in the compatibility section, it talks about what models, uh, are compatible and it goes from the 2GS, uh, back to the 2E, the 2E enhanced, uh, the 2 plus, and then it says the 2 is to be determined, but, um, uh, <laughs> what's funny here, it says, uh, the Apple 2E, yes, but not tested yet. Well, I have tested it. I have a plain old 2E, not the 2E uh, enhanced, and it does work. So we'll get them to update their page. So the very first 
uh, test that I gave the CFFA is I went and downloaded some of my favorite games off the web, uh, the Apple Disk images. I put them on there, and the very first game I tried was Karatika. So I put the Karatika disk image on the USB stick. I put it in, uh, I went to the menu, I mounted the disc, and it loaded. I saw the menu, and then when it went to load again, it wouldn't work. And I thought, oh no. Have I, um, have I bought something that's not going to work on things that I have to load multiple times? Does it not support multi-load games? Uh, is it not compatible with certain games? Does it not play Karatika? Like, all these things went through my mind, you know, and so... The second test was Load Runner, which is um, just a classic game I grew up playing all the time. So I threw in Load Runner and it worked. And Load Runner worked perfectly. And then I played Choplifter and Choplifter worked perfectly. Uh, so everything has worked except for Karatika. And so I went to the um, CFFA forums looking for people that were having issues. And sure enough, there's a thread that says uh, Karatika doesn't work. And we all got uh, the disk image from the same place. And, uh, but there's a different disc image that does work. And so I did get Karatika working as well. So, um, now here is a video preview that kind of explains some of the features of the CFFA 3000. Now, obviously you won't be able to see the video, but, um, you should be able to get a good idea of, of uh, some of the cards features based off this little video. Oh, I just looked here. Um, this video was actually made and uploaded by Retro Rerun. And uh, if you don't subscribe to his channel, if you're an Apple II person, he has a lot of cool uh, uh, little things. He has a, a, a little thing about cleaning Apple II disk drives, which has been really useful. I've used that before. Um, so, uh, But, yeah, anyway, so this is a, a quick little video about the CFFA 3000 from Retro Rerun's channel on YouTube. Welcome to this introduction to the Compact Flash for Apple 3000 card, otherwise known as the CFFA 3000. This video will demonstrate how to use this very modern bit of hardware in a very retro situation, an Apple II computer. Physical hard drives are slow, noisy, failure-prone, and drive technology has pulled way out ahead of the Apple II's realm. Small, working, SCSI drives are just hard to get anymore. The most common use for a CFFA 3000 card and its predecessors is to use it as a virtual hard drive. New for the CFFA 3000 is the ability to host virtual hard drives not only as rigid partitions on a compact flashcard, but also as whole disk images represented as normal files, one per virtual disk that you can easily copy, backup, store, and exchange. Also new for the CFFA 3000 is Disk 2 emulation. You can use disk images from any Apple II operating system, including some copy-protected games. You can back up your real disks to virtual image files, and then copy the disk images to the CFFA 3000 to run just like they did before, just without the floppy disk. Here's a tour of the card. This is the main read-write LED. It'll blink when the card is busy. There's a bank of configuration switches on the card, but you don't really need to mess with them. They've got a handy legend on the back if you need to look one up. Then there's the slot for the compact flash card and the USB port. Note that you can plug in a USB thumb drive directly, 
or you can use any of a number of other adapters like extension cords or multi-card readers. So let's get started and see the CFFA 3000 in action. So we'll start by plugging the CFFA 3000 into slot 7 of an Apple IIe. That's the traditional slot that a hard drive controller goes into. You can pick any slot you want for the most part. Some machines will restrict you from using slot 3, so to keep it traditional we'll just use slot 7. Remember, Apple's ProDOS has the ability to use one or more hard drives of up to 32 megabytes in size. We'll start by taking a virtual hard drive image with ProDOS already on it and set up the CFFA 3000 to boot from it. We can basically use any USB stick or compact flashcard we have available. Plug it into a host computer, drag any hard drive image to it, and eject it back out. The disk image we'll use here is a backup of the one that shipped with the original CFFA card. Now we plug the USB stick into the CFFA 3000 and turn the Apple II on. We'll quickly hit the M key to get to the configuration menu. Since this is a hard drive image, we'll select Smart Port. Our image is on the USB stick and it shows in the File Chooser menu here. Hit Return to select it for inclusion and we're done. Leaving the menus, we'll automatically boot and we can see it start up. You have fine-grained control of exactly which disk image will appear on which slots and drives, but for simplicity we're just sticking with the defaults here. Note too that you can do all these same operations with a compact flash card as well as the USB stick. You can even have both of them in the card at the same time. Using the CFFA 3000 as a hard drive is great, but one of the cool new features of the card is to allow it to emulate a standard floppy drive controller with floppy disks. The great thing about this is that you can use virtual disk images from the internet or disks you already own, but without ever having to copy them back to physical floppies again. You're using the real Apple II hardware, so it's better than emulation, but your floppies won't ever wear out. The concept is the same as for hard drive images. You just need to copy the floppy images to the USB stick. We'll get into the CFFA 3000 configuration by hitting the M key on boot up, invoking the CFFA 3000 menu. Here we'll tell the CFFA to configure floppy disk as the traditional slot 6. Then select the disk configuration, pick the image we want to insert, and hit return. We back out of the menus and reboot. The virtual disk and the virtual drive will then boot up just as if it were a real floppy disk. The CFFA 3000 opens up a bunch of new possibilities for backing up your physical and virtual disks. For example, you could configure your card to host the virtual disk 2 in slot 7 and then have a real disk 2 in slot 6. That way you could use any disk 2 copy software to copy from slot 6 to slot 7 and you'd be making a virtual backup of the physical disk. Back on the modern computer, backing up your virtual images is as simple as dragging the virtual image files to the main file system for safekeeping. The same technique works for either floppy or hard disks on the Apple II end. That's it for this brief introduction. We've just scratched the surface of this very flexible and powerful card. The CFFA 3000 has new capabilities of hosting virtual disk images of any shape, size, or operating system for the Apple II. It has the ability to substitute contemporary silicon storage for aging magnetic technologies. For a computer approaching its 35th birthday, the CFFA 3000 is as future-proof as it gets in this industry.
Thanks for watching. Visit Dreher.net for more information. So again, that was Retro Rerun uh, from YouTube, and his uh, basically his video is is um, it's linked to the official CFFA three thousand website, um, or is linked from the CFFA three thousand website, which is why I thought um, that they had done it. But this video is kind of what uh, convinced me to buy mine. So, um. Like I said, the initial run of the CFFA, um, I guess the compact flashcards weren't able to be read in the PC or something. You had to format things, use different tools. But with, uh, with the advent or the introduction of USB to the card, I just think that makes it so much more useful. Uh, I mean, literally everything, every computer I own now has a USB port. So, uh, you know, you could just, uh, well, <laughs> not everyone, <laughs> as I look over to the Commodore. Uh, but every modern PC that I have obviously has a, uh, USB card. So, uh, or a USB port. So, you know, especially with the extension cable and the USB coming out the back, it's very easy and quick to just copy these disc images over and play them. Now, um, things I would have liked to seen differently in the CFFA 3000, which is, uh, me nitpicking something that was absolutely genius to put together and work. I could never, uh... <laughs> Come up with a piece of hardware like this, but um, on the 1541 Ultimate for the Commodore has buttons uh, that you can press a button and it launches into um, its version, uh, you know, a 1980s version of a GUI interface. But, um, uh, you know, it pops up with a menu where you can switch discs out, pick which disc you want, uh, all these things. And once uh, you've started with the... CFFA 3000, once you've you've launched into your uh, Apple program, there's no way to get back into that menu to switch disks. The remote system, uh, the remote that I ordered that came with it, does work for flopping, th you know, uh, moving through the disk images that you've mounted, but there's no text letting you know exactly what disk image uh, that you have mounted. And... Um, you know, as far as being able to use the card to do a reset on the Apple or any, you know, it doesn't do those things. So, um, it's a little bit, I, and I, I don't know that that reflects the limitations of the card as much as it may reflect limitations on the Apple too. Um, but, um, so, you know, I don't know that it's, uh, has as many features as something like the 1541 ultimate does for the Commodore, but, I mean, for what it does, it's amazing. This uh, little card, you know, and everything that I've read online, it looks like a lot of people are using it for the hard drive images, so I might be missing out on not, um, uh, I guess I'm more, is this a word, floppy-centric? <laughs> Maybe I just coined a new word. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's where my head is mostly, is, is um, floppy disks and archiving those and copying those and making those. Uh, and there is a, uh, you know, just like with the uh, 1541 Ultimate, and like was mentioned in the video, uh, you can have physical drives, which was my my whole goal, really, was to have physical drives hooked up at the same time as the CFFA 3000 so that you can copy back and forth uh, from real disks to um, virtual disks and back. So um, I don't know that I have a lot more to say about the CFFA 3000. I guess the second run is out, and I don't know. Let's check the website here. Okay, so it does say here that uh, the second run became available in June of 2012, 
I ordered mine after that. I got mine in August or September, and there were 500 cards uh, in run number two. And I'm going to see here if it says how many were made for number one. Okay, it looks like there were 300 for the first run. So that's 800 total of these cards. And I don't see anything on here right now about um, uh, new version, not pre-orders for the new version. There may be, let me click a couple things. Here's an order form. Uh, nope. It says order form. Run number two has sold out. And they do still have the... Um, CFFA 3000 remote and cable available for 19.95. So if you did order one of the cards and don't have the cable, it looks like you could still um, get one of those. One thing I wanted to mention is that um, there are BIOS updates being released for the card that are fixing uh, one of the early um, feedbacks that people were posting is that the original CFFA did not support um, subdirectories, so everything had to be in the root, which of course limits um, not only your organization, but how many files you can put on a USB stick, and uh, the latest BIOS update does support subdirectories now, so that's a nice addition, so the the product is being updated, and it's a very simple uh, product to upgrade, you just have to um, copy the new BIOS over to, I think, I don't know if you can do it from the USB. I saw a note that said it had to be done from Compact Flash. Um, but, uh, yeah, the firmware updates um, are really nice. Well, that's about all I have to say about the uh, CFFA 3000. I do highly recommend it if you're an Apple II person. Uh, if you're like me uh, and you have an interest in copying from virtual disk images to physical images or backing those physical images up into virtual disk images or just playing virtual disk images uh, off of a USB stick on a real physical Apple II, then I do, like I said, highly recommend this. It's a, a wonderful piece of technology. It's just amazing to me and it just breathes entirely new life uh, into old hardware. So I really do enjoy it. I am now firing up Chivalry which is a game I used to play in 5th or 6th grade. I can't remember, but I used to play this. This is before Defender of the Crown and um, uh, a few other medieval-type games. But uh, right in the, the peak of my Dungeons & Dragons days, I used to play Chivalry. So I'm going to start playing Chivalry right now, and you are going to go do something else. So thank you for listening to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Next week will be episode 124, and I don't have a topic in mind yet. So uh, if you want to send me your requests, um, if not, I've got plenty on stack that I'll pick from. But uh, if you do have anything you'd like to hear about, you can always email those requests to Rob O'Hara at robohara.com or drop me a line at the You Don't Know Flag Voice mailbox. Uh, once again, thank everybody for listening. I really appreciate it. I appreciate all the feedback and uh, all the hits and everybody who has shared the show on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. Super duper thanks to you guys. Uh, I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, you guys are the reason that I keep doing it. So um, that's it for another episode of You Don't Know Flat. <laughs>